This might upset people. My personality, for those who haven't met me yet, is the fact that doing something is going to be difficult to me is never enough justification alone to not do the right thing. Just because it's hard isn't a reason by itself to not do it when you know it's the right thing to do. Hey there, my name's Ashley Church. And I'm Erin West. We were once newly promoted crime scene and latent print supervisors on mutual struggle buses as we both simultaneously tried to navigate through the challenges within our forensic units. Now we run a business where we create tools and resources that we wish we had had to make these transitions easier. We like to talk about the experiences we've had in the forensic field, the good, the bad, and the ugly, in the hopes to create awareness around these issues and move the needle forward to create positive change in the forensic community. So if you're a forensic professional, regardless of your years of experience, who's not afraid to dive into real, raw, and sometimes uncomfortable topics, you're in the right place. This is the Forensics Unfiltered Podcast. Before we start this episode, our guests would like to share a disclaimer that the opinions shared are their own and not representative of their current or past employment. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy. Hello, hello. This is Ashley. Welcome back to Forensics Unfiltered. We really hope that 2024 has been off to a great start for you so far. I know for us, it has been a wild and crazy ride, and it's only February. We just wrapped up a virtual academy for forensic field training officers. We've been working on two new e-courses. So one has already launched and one is launching soon. We have the virtual symposium coming up in March. And we also have a secret squirrely project that we've been working on that we will be announcing at the symposium. So hopefully we will see you there. Make sure to grab your ticket. But today we are excited to get into a definitely a polarizing topic and one that we've talked about before, and that is standardization in the forensic field. Now, this was recorded at the end or near the end of 2023 during a time when this topic was generating a lot of buzz. So we are excited to have our guest, Brianne Breedlove from Uncover Forensics on our podcast to share her experience and her knowledge with standards in the forensic field. I think you're really going to like the discussion that we have with her. I know I certainly enjoyed hearing Brianne's perspective on the topic of standardization, but as always, we would love to know your thoughts. So make sure you leave a comment or a review on this particular episode and let us know what you think about standardization in the forensic field. Hi guys, welcome back to another episode of Forensics Unfiltered. We are so excited to have you here. Today we have a very special guest with us and a dear friend of ours, Miss Brianne Breedlove from Uncover Forensics. Welcome. Hi. <laughs> you guys have probably seen her at many an IAI conference. She puts a fabulous booth together and often gives away wine, which we, you know, 10 out of 10 for that. <laughs> So we're very excited to have her join us today, and we're going to talk about all kinds of interesting topics. But before we do that, Ms. Bree, if you'll please let us know a little bit about your background and a little bit about what you do with Uncover Forensics. 
Thank you for having me on. Thank you for the invitation. It's always nice to see your all's faces too. Living on the opposite end of the coast, I get excited. Like, oh, it's so nice to see you. As mentioned, my name is Brianne Breelove. I uh, started my career as a crime scene examiner and latent print examiner for various law enforcement agencies in 2009 and was an intern prior to that and in school prior to that. And roughly early 2020, I launched a company called Uncover Forensics. We specialize in online self-paced training. So that's training classes of pre-recorded lectures, downloaded practical exercises that you can do and take at your own pace around the needs of your daily casework. And we offer courses in a variety of crime scene and friction ridge topics right now. And upcoming are some in firearms and hopefully some DNA as well. You can check us out at uncoverforensics.com. And also in my career, I've had the wonderful opportunity to teach a lot for the past five or six years. I lose track. <laughs> I have gotten to present at a lot of different conferences for II, many of the divisions, some study groups. And I also have been a member of the ASB Friction Ridge Consensus Body for the past five or so years. Recently upgraded to a voting member. It was time. I finally felt I was confident enough to be, you know, have the power of a vote, so applied for it. And actually just this week, I was appointed to the OSAC Friction Ridge Subcommittee as well. This is the first I'm hearing of that. Congratulations. I saw it on social, though. <laughs> yeah, yes, thank you. Yeah, it's, it's excited. It's going to be a three-year volunteer term, and I'm really looking forward to seeing the other side, ASB OSAC. Those, we're going to talk about those. And having been on ASB for so long, I've gotten to know their processes and how that all works. And I've known so many people in OSAC, so have had a wonderful education from them too. But getting to be in it, I'm really looking forward because I feel like it's going to make me an even better educator and better help as people have questions about all this and, you know, to kind of be in it and then also just help serve the community in that way. And we all have our niche, right, in our job. And I discovered mine was standards. I'm a huge nerd for how we do things and why, as well as can tolerate the little details of, okay, it's a BPR, so it can't have a shell statement. How are we going to reword this? And yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, she, what she just mentioned about like nerding out on standards. Now that I've gotten to know you a little bit, you very much nerd out on researching kind of anything. <laughs> like, That's true. Any, <laughs> anything you get into, you really dive <sighs> deep and do all the research for it, which I love. That's so true. Sometimes I am like a squirrel though. Gosh, I forget if it was last year or the year before when I was invited to write the history chapter for the Forensic Encyclopedia about the history of use of fingerprints for identification and the deep dive. I mean, and they told me like, you don't have to do this too much far. You've gone too I know, far. I know. But, but I was like, <laughs> but I'm finding the original Nehemiah Grew paper. I'm finding like the original Herschel papers that I'm, <laughs> it's, I yeah. went off the deep end on that one. <laughs> So at least you know when she gives you information, she, she has done a deep dive on it before she gave it to you. That's true. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> Probably too far, but that's okay. And I know I, we're going to get into a lot of the standard stuff too, but it's also incredible that you launched a business in 2020. Ah. <laughs> I bet that was kind of a journey in and of itself. 
Uh, you know, it was, and I know you guys know our two companies came up at the exact same time and mm -hmm. I'll never forget that first II conference when we were both in the vendor hall and having the opportunity to meet you both and shake your hand and be like, I've seen you, I've watched you because I've been doing the same thing. I was a single mom at the time looking to pay bills and I was like, all right, well, I'll teach some classes live person and make some extra money throughout the year. And then of course, as you guys know, <laughs> COVID hit and then all of a sudden, mm -hmm. And then the II started approving these online classes. And then not only the online webinars, but then the pre-recorded, you know, autonomous self-paced stuff. And I started doing that and watching the community respond was amazing because people were so excited and there's such a need for it. It's budget saving. Mm -hmm. Live person will always be phenomenal. Don't get me wrong. But there were so many people that were kind of like, my agency cut my training budget. We don't have as much. I wouldn't have been able to get training if it weren't for companies like yeah. this that are out there. And over the past few years, it's totally taken on a life of its own. There are 30. 12 or 13 instructors now and a project manager and and it's just and so many people have wanted to be a part of it in every conference I go to it's there's so many examiners that are so excited and it's I feel like it's not mine anymore that sounds so yeah funny, but it's true because it's just I hear what people want I hear what they need it's exciting to be able to give it to them I love, and I've always loved facilitating connections between people who have information and people that need information. That's why I like teaching. It's why I like presenting probably standards as well. And to be able to do that overseas, we've had some international students too, who there's plenty of countries that don't have forensic training companies in country. Mm -hmm. And this is something that we can provide for them as well, just based on the format of the course it is. And it's just opening so many opportunities and for cross-training and people are just, every conference I go to, people get excited and that excites me. And then I'm like, okay, like, yeah, it's thrilling and it's rewarding. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm really grateful. And I'm sure you guys understand too, you know, it was the exact same time and we all had to veer left and oh yeah, out, like, what are yeah we, we, we did a major and we pivot experienced as well. something similar like you yeah where it's just kind of morphed into this thing that we had no idea the vision would end up being this like this isn't what we pictured at the beginning so it's kind of cool just watching the the businesses like morph into what they are today yeah, and your virtual summit, which thank you for having me be a part of that earlier this year. Uh, all the seminars you guys put together and everything. It's, yeah, it definitely takes a life of its own and it's, it's great and it's tough to keep up with, honestly, I think. It's like there's only so many hours in the day. And there's such a request <laughs> and desire from the field. And it's, we feel that. Like, I know, I know. Right now. Actually, and actually, I feel like we're like, you're probably the same, but we feel like the train is going and we're like constantly <laughs> running to keep up with the train. <laughs> like, the like train that. is going. <laughs> Somehow the cart went in front of me and I'm like the horse behind, just trying to like, wait a sec, hold on. You know, I'm, 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 yeah. I'm coming, I swear. And uh, it's, it's exciting. Exciting to be invited 100%. to, right? And and people want more classes and, and invited to. I'm excited that now you know other instructors are getting invited to speak at conferences too. That's nice too. But there is like my project right now. The main thing I'm doing is migrating us over to an entirely new website with an entirely new uh, learning management system. And so I'm building one from kind of from scratch. You're using LMS plugins and building a whole new website and incorporating e-commerce and doing all the web design. And I so frequently sit and think, 
I used to be just a fingerprint person. Like, how did I end up, <laughs> right? How did I end up it's an so expert true. in web design and in, in marketing? That's very true. That. That's the, the things that you learn, you thought. I you kind of love it, know. though. I know. It's 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 exciting, but there are, and I get super into it. And then there's moments, though, you're like, what am I doing? How did I, how did I get here? But yeah, so but it's true. good. And I feel anyone out there who has an email into me that I haven't responded to, I'm so sorry. It's tough. And I, I'm getting, I need more help really is what it is. It's yeah. time to bring on more people and more help. We, we definitely <laughs> understand that. We'll have people, sure. here's a, here's a secret guys, for those listening to our podcast, like we'll have people be like, can you send this to your finance department? And like, sure, it's me, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> I congratulated myself on social media yesterday. <laughs> I'm in between people for social media posting. And so it still needs to sound like it's coming from someone else while I'm in that space. Yeah. And it was just, and so I'm sitting there like a third person. Congratulations on the OSAC appointment. So yeah, no, anyone totally. who liked it or... <laughs> Yep. All right, yep. so let's dive into some of our topics at hand. So <laughs> you already mentioned the standardization, SOPs, all of that is your jam. <laughs> all the wording, it's your jam. So tell us about, for those out in the field that really don't know about some of these organizations, like what are some of the organizations that provide some guidelines of standardization for the forensic disciplines? Yeah, it's a great question. I do find as I travel, I love getting to know what people know and don't know. And there are people out there who have never heard of OSAC and ASB and who don't really know who they are or why. I'm actually going to walk it back a little bit. We'll take it off the nuclear button of forensic standards. And um, <laughs> <laughs> and first, you know, a generic picture of how standards works in the United States, just real briefly, is you know, standards are everywhere, you know, and everywhere we look in almost every aspect of our daily lives, how things are constructed, even the size of our ID cards and things like that nature. And where those come from is state governments and the federal government are the ones who make the regulations and they make the laws and the rules that people are supposed to follow. It's government entities that will say, okay, this is what you have to do as a baseline. This is the training we expect. And they form all of the actual regulations on and that force us to do things. But where those regulations come from, because these are, of course, politicians, and they don't always know what they're supposed to do about a field they've never been a part of. So what they'll do is they'll look at published standards documents that are put out by things called standards development organizations or SDOs. For example, the electrical wiring in your house, there's an SDO in this country called the National Fire Protection Agency, the NFPA, and they put out a document called the National Electric Code. And then what happened was every single one of the 50 states decided to adopt that code into their own state legislation and then require everyone to follow rules that were based off of that document. So that's how it normally works in every industry, in the medical field, in scientific research, is that SDOs, standards development organizations who are privately run, not attached to any government at all, will develop and publish standards. And then government entities kind of come in, they'll look at which ones are out there and they'll pick which ones they want everyone in the industry within their jurisdiction to follow. And that's usually state government and sometimes the feds. And usually states try to get on board with each other and follow the same ones 
You know, for example, if you've ever marveled at why your debit or credit card fits into every ATM, that's actually an ISO document. ISO is an international standards development organization. We'll talk about them in a second. And there's a document that says, hey, these are recommendations for sizes of ID cards and debit cards and passports. And everybody just decided to adopt it. So when it comes to forensic standards, the question is, let's start with SDOs. So who are the standards development organizations that are actually publishing and putting out these documents. And there's a few on a kind of local level in country. The primary one is called ASB. The A used to stand for American Academy of Forensic Sciences and then Standards Board, and now it's just called the Academy Standards Board. They are a part of the American Academy of Forensic Sciences. That's the people that oversee ASB. And ASB is not the only SDO in this country that puts out documents that can be related to forensic sciences, but they are the only one in country that is focused on just forensic documents. And what I mean by that is there's another SDO called ASTM, for example, and they focus on other industrial type standards, but as they've done so, they've put out documents that do overlap some of forensics, like for digital imaging or for GSR, or I think some trace evidence documents that can be used in forensics. There's also, you know, we talked about the Fire Protection Agency. Obviously, some documents they've put out can relate to fire and explosive investigation. So there are other SDOs out there that put documents out that forensics could utilize, but ASB is the only one that, while producing and publishing documents, has only the forensic field on their mind. And so that's kind of the people that are actually putting the docs out, and that's what ASB is. And then above that on national level, you have ANSI, so the American National Standards Institute. They are a nationwide organization, and they have a lot of different roles. This is very summarized. Hopefully everyone knows that. I should also say that this is all not um, we only have so much time, guys. So I know. Sorry. <laughs> right. He's cutting it down. Yes. Don't be, and don't it's be also upset. not the voice of ASB or OSAC. This is me. Um, so ANSI, <laughs> one of their roles is they play a gateway between standards organizations in the U.S. and the international market. They help pass things back and forth. They'll bring international docs in, introduce them into the U.S. and vice versa because they are the U.S. representative to ISO. ANSI also accredits all of the internal SDOs. Those standards development organizations like ASB, like ASTM that I was just talking about. So their influence comes into a lot of when you look at ASB and how they put documents out there, all the steps ASB goes through with like the process of a common adjudication and all the technical stuff. A lot of that, like accreditation in a laboratory sense, is kind of dictated by ANSI. And then ANSI is the entity that eventually will publish those documents as well. It has to go through them to come out. And then on the international stage, do you have ISO? For anyone who doesn't know, that's not an acronym. It's <laughs> the International Organization for Standardization, but they realized that if you translate their name into different languages, it would be a different acronym. So they picked the word ISO, which origin basically means equal. And so they are the entity that puts out a lot of documents on the international level, including ones that you see in accreditation bodies. Accreditation bodies don't develop or publish standards, so they're not really involved in that sense. However, they do look at standards documents that have been published and choose which one they want to incorporate into their accreditation requirements. That's how, for example, that a lot of the accreditation today is called ISO 17020 or 17025, because the accrediting body decided that they want to use the published SDO document out of ISO called 17020 or 17025 
as a guideline for the requirements for accreditation, if that makes sense. So they at least pay attention and incorporate standards into what they want from people. So that's on the SGO level. And then there's the government level. Like I said before, you know, governments are the ones that actually decide and make regulations on what people should do. And they are the enforcers of what everyone should do. And there really isn't <laughs> government oversight at this moment on state levels or federal levels. We do have some states that are coming up with some entities to kind of try that for the first time. Like in Texas, they have licensure for forensic examiners, for example. They also have the Texas Forensic Science Commission who kind of helps try to look at some of the standards documents that are out there and advise the government on maybe people should be doing this. But the government level is where OSAC comes into play. So OSAC exists underneath the federal government, way down from the executive branch, specifically directly under NIST, which is the National Institute of Standards and Technology. And OSAC is the Organization of Scientific Area Committees. I love our acronyms. Oh my goodness gracious. And OSAC's role is a lot. A part of it is to advise the federal government on which standards published by SDOs it thinks forensic practitioners should follow. But another thing they do is to advise the federal government and they find needs of the forensic community overall. And whether it's research needs and to identify research needs, or sometimes they also see a need for a discipline to have a standard. And if they can't find that standard already published, they'll draft one and submit it to an SGO for development. And then they also keep a list of standards they think that forensic practitioners should follow. And that's called their OSAC registry. SDOs like ASB, <laughs> create published documents. And then government entities like state legislative bodies or the federal legislative body will actually dictate if they think that everyone within their jurisdiction should follow them. And meanwhile, entities underneath the government like OSAC will advise and support adoption of these standards and even kind of be involved in trying to help the forensic community overall get what they need, including the process of drafting those standards and sending them off. So hey. hopefully that's clear as mud. But <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of things. It's a, it's a yeah, good explanation yeah. though. I re actually really liked how you talked about credit cards. And I mean, that's a very simple thing that we never ever think about. But <laughs> if we thought about credit card vendors, the way that forensics works, right? And we thought about every single credit card vendor could make their own machine and their own sized credit card, which is mm -hmm. kind of what we do in forensics right now. Like every vendor makes their own thing, doesn't communicate with each other, doesn't the communicate across state lines, nationwide, <laughs> none of that. Then you could take your credit card and you could only put it in the machine of that vendor in that location and it wouldn't be universal. Yep. So yeah. I think that's actually a great example of just a small standardization, how it makes life a little more seamless for us in a way that we don't even realize. And it's not just for forensic personnel. It's no. like, it would be nice that it's much more user-friendly and you can like expect that from one forensic unit to another, like this is how it's going to be. It would be nice if deputies had that luxury of expectations, detectives, state attorneys, but I definitely experienced that. And I know Aaron has too, like going to different agencies, it's like starting all over again. You feel like you've, you've been doing forensics for years, but if you hop on over to a different agency, even doing the same position, it's like learning everything all over again because no one's adopted standards. And it blows my mind mm -hmm. that we're just kind of, free to do whatever we want. 
I've had the experience of changing agencies and I definitely had shell shock when I went from one to the other. It is different and it probably would be nice for, say, everyone in a courtroom, picture attorneys at even just a county level. And if they have county forensic people and sometimes some city forensic people, I find that even people within one unit at one lab are going to do different things on the stand or say different things, but then you get different labs in one jurisdiction, but everyone testifies in the same courtroom or courthouse, and yet every member of the courthouse has to hear kind of different ways, and they're trying to filter out, is this appropriate, is it not? Honestly, if I were a layperson, I would find it terrifying to learn that the whole field of forensic science has no oversight whatsoever. It is terrifying. <laughs> That's, I oh, mean, yeah. in the same tone, I'm so grateful for the people who did kind of take up the charge. If you look at our field, we actually have actively tried to be a bit uh, self-policing in that way. You know, even as far back as the 90s, which is, I'm so old, I hate saying as far back as the 90s. <laughs> But yeah, it, when the scientific working groups came about and they weren't an official, formal, accredited standards development organization, but these were groups of people who were volunteers and making a really solid effort to put out documents, best practice recommendations and standards that people could hopefully opt into following. And they were at least trying to get something on paper that people could then choose to adopt into their SOPs. And they did a wonderful job at it. And then now after the advent of like the NAS slash NRC report and a few other things, forensics kind of saw the writing on the wall that governments might start making legislation. And so we went ahead and created ASB and started trying to get documents out there for ourselves and everything. Cause it's a little, I would think scary when, that there isn't any sort of oversight yeah. or, you know, I think honestly, I mean, you guys can speak for yourselves, but like I've worked in forensics for years and as a forensic professional, if a crime happened to my family, <laughs> I would be concerned about having some departments work it over other departments, mm -hmm. you know? So it is kind of crazy that that exists in the field, but I want to talk a little bit about some pros and cons of doing this, of standardization across the board, because I think we could probably agree that there are a lot of advocates for it in the field that are like, we should be doing this, we need to do this. There's plenty of people practicing who probably shouldn't be practicing. But then there are also some people in the field that are very against it and very much fighting against putting a lot of standards in place and making everything the same and requiring things like certifications and education and certain amount of training and all of that kind of stuff. So let's just talk a little bit about some like pros and cons or like why people are for and, and also maybe fighting against change. You know, when it comes to should there be a baseline standard? Should there be standardization cross country or even within one state? Because that will be a state government's choices to do that as well. And I think it's a great question. And of course, it's an important question. And what I'll do is, you know, I, I like to walk people through my thought process is I look at the rest of my life. You know, we've kind of joked about some of the easy stuff to point out as far as standards are concerned, or like the fact that I can plug my devices into every outlet, no matter where I travel in the U.S., because it's always the same size outlet. 
But I also look at things like I've never had to dig up the plans for my city to investigate what materials they used when they pipe my water into my house and what material the pipes are made out of and really deep dive into that just to make sure that when my kid drinks the water, he won't get lead poisoning. I've never had to do that. I own a home. And yes, I did an inspection for the surface level stuff, but I, I did not have to really dig into, okay, what is actually in the interior of these walls to ensure that the roof isn't going to collapse on my kid because of shoddy work, because there's regulations about that. Every state has building codes. In general, I think everyone should always kind of question, well, what is this made out of? Where does this medication come from? Sure, you know, do some research. But can you imagine if we tried to deep dive literally on everything because there's no standards. Going to a restaurant and having to ask them, well, what is your process for purchasing food? Where do you get it from? How do you store it? Is it safe? How do you cook it? At what temperatures? And doing that for everything in our world, the cars we buy, the goods we consume, the clothing we have and what material it's made out of, there just isn't space in the day. It is impossible to be able to do that for ourselves to that depth level. So at some point we have to rely on someone's word for some things. And then it becomes really scary if it really is just their word because there's no regulation of it and there's no standardization and there's nobody that said, you have to meet this baseline safety standard. You have to make sure that their house is not gonna collapse on them for no good reason. You have to make sure that you store your food in a way that's not gonna poison these people. And it's not just a luxury, although it is, sure, that's really nice to not have to do, but it's a necessity because we can't do it all ourselves. And then I look at what we do in the forensic discipline. And I look at the defendants that stand there, especially innocent people who their lives are in our hands often because of how impactful our testimony can be. And I look at victims and victim families who might not also get closure because of shoddy work, or again, putting someone away in jail, having their lives just taken away from them because of shoddy forensic work. The significance of what we do, and I'm not trying to put pressure on people, I don't mean to stress people out, you know, but, but it's seemingly meaningful work that impacts literally lives. And so when I think about that, and I think about the fact that right now, the entirety of it rests in the hands of some defense attorney often to be able to know to ask the right questions. Honestly, I feel like why would we not have standards of some kind? Why would we not want to ensure to all these people involved whose lives we are impacting directly that there is some baseline that we're meeting? It blows my mind the idea of like, well, why would we? Because I'm sitting over here thinking of all of the rest of the things in my life that I love the fact that there are standards about because I can't make sure that they meet a baseline safety protocol myself. I don't have the resources and I'm so grateful that they meet some standard. And then I look at us and I'm like, why would we not offer the same thing? Like why, yeah. you know, it, it's, it's strange to me. So that's how I got there. And I think one of the biggest concerns people have is, well, we don't want to have to do anything identical, like, oh, it's trying to make us all identical, or we don't want to have to change entirely. And I like to point to, again, kind of daily life, but also accreditation. There's lots of labs that are accredited, and I have never been to an accredited lab and then visited another accredited lab and thought they do things identically to each other. <laughs> it's, or, you know, like, look at cars is a great example. There's standards for cars and the size of the tires and the safety features and everything else, but look at the different models that even just one company will put out while still meeting those standards. Standards don't mean identical. It's a baseline 
kind of safety measure of, hey, anything below this is, is kind of risky and we can't guarantee quality and reliability. What we want to do is bring everybody up to at least a level of reliability and the safety and quality of the work we're doing. And from there, people can do what they want. It's like, okay, so baseline document this, but how you do it, what form you use, how you market, how, you know, is totally up to you. I understand they're like, oh my gosh, you know, they're trying to make us all the same, but there's not, there's so much room to move still. People that want to paint their house different colors or have different architectural stylings. It's, it's very similar that way. And I do hear the kind of, well, we've always done things this way. Why does it need to change? And I think it's human nature to resist change when it's not our own idea. And that, that is hard. You know, I can tell you, nobody's trying to say, oh, we know best and blah, 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 and, and force everyone into something. I will say from experience with OSAC people and ASB people, these are a lot of volunteers from a lot of different walks of life and different industries who are genuinely trying to find the best, well-rounded, still ensuring quality kind of documents for the betterment of everyone. And it's funny because the one constant in life is change. We're always changing. Things are always going to change. Nothing is ever going to be the same. And I get it. Like, it's a pain. And I even roll my eyes sometimes like, I don't want to do this. You know, it's so much <laughs> extra work to rewrite SOPs and to do this new thing. And I've been doing it for 20 years. Why do I have to do it this way now? And I'm like, you know, we also, as fingerprint people, we also used to have to search through physical cards and file cabinets, you know, crime scene. We used to take film Horrible. photography. Like, <laughs> I'm so glad I didn't have to go through the film photography days at crime scenes and worry <laughs> that I didn't get the shot right. I don't think the change is disrespectful to the historical aspect either. Historical aspect is always something to love and appreciate. And where did we come from and why? And I also think even the people that contributed to the field and changed things the way that they did, even if we changed what they recommended 10 or 20 years ago, that's not disrespecting them. That's building on what they taught, right? The yeah. best legacy we can really leave is not to have somebody do things the way we did forevermore. It's to be able to offer up something that people can jump from that elevated platform and go further than we did. That's the legacy is, yes, build on whatever I came up with, build on what I taught. So I think it's almost disrespectful to just stay and do the same thing for 40 or 50 years. That. It's, it's, yeah. And you know, I, I know it's hard. I, I, also, so great. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I, I, also, I want to mention something based on what you said, because you, you talked about like standardizing forensics will improve the science and you kind of support the investigations, make sure that shoddy work is not being done. And that is beneficial to the defendants, the victims, all of that. But it's also beneficial to us, right? Like having these things in place will create a safety so much easier for us oh, too. Yeah. 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 I, you know, I worked for an agency yeah. that didn't have written in-house SOPs and it was terrifying. I feel bad. I think they thought my desire to have them was again, like, oh, you're trying to put us all into the same pigeonhole or you just think you know everything. And Really, it wasn't. It was my anxiety was through the roof. I was terrified. And sure enough, we did have a case earlier this year where defense asked for what are your SOPs? And I was like, okay, here we go. I know that testimony is smoother and less combative with an attorney when you can kind of point and say, this is our source. This is where we get something from, you know, and it, it does make an examiner's life a lot easier. I can't tell you how many people 
I have spoken to who have approached me saying, oh my gosh, my agency doesn't have SOPs either. And I'm scared all the time. I'm so scared of when I go to testify that it's going to get obliterated. And we do see it testimony thrown out easily and often when things aren't documented in such a way to meet court expectations of reproducibility of what happened during the original examination, or when they can't point to a source as to why their process is generally accepted. All of those Daubert, Fry, Federals of Evidence things that court expects to be there. How do you meet them? And how do you say, yes, my technique was generally accepted. Yes, it was peer reviewed when what you're doing isn't published somewhere or when there is no standardization to it and you have nothing to point to as to how it meets all those requirements for admissibility of both the evidence and your testimony. So it certainly makes everybody's life a lot easier. Absolutely. Less culpability as well. If, if people aren't buying into so, it yet, I can also say like, hey, then you make less decisions. <laughs> Isn't that nice? Less responsibility. Yeah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I love that. I love also that you said like the seriousness of what you do. I know Aaron had mentioned it's beneficial to us, but I've also seen some people be resistant because there are so many police departments and maybe even sheriff's offices that have never had crime scene units before. And they're like, we implement this. It will just be harder for us to start our own. And it kind of, it should be. There's no sheriff's office or police department in the United States that's like, mm, I feel like I'm going to have an aviation unit and just like a pilot and just like have a body helicopter. I don't know if the, the disconnect is like, oh, they're just like brushing fingerprint powder. It's not a big deal. But I know from the classes that we've taught, it's scary. Even standards alone, let's talk about like even training programs. The majority of forensic units out there don't even have a training program in place. And so now you have crime scene investigators doing this work without any training. We even have latent print examiners that maybe go to a 40 hour latent print class and they're like, you can now do comparisons. And that is scary. So I kind of would love to hear from your experience, like why people are so resistant or like, what's the solution to get people on board with trying to do more standardization in the forensic field? Some of the points you brought up about first, the idea of law enforcement agencies that don't have say a crime scene unit or, or a friction range unit or something. And they're like, oh, well, this will make it harder. Or I actually know some agencies locally and out of state where they've taken detectives and thrown them into what they call the crime lab and said, okay, well now you're doing fingerprint work. And yeah. less the detectives I've run into, because the reason I've run into them is they're at training classes with me because they're just scrambling going, I want to be able to do it right. And we have nothing written down. I don't know what to do. I'm a detective. And backtracking a little, I will say, and this, this might upset people, my personality <laughs> for those who haven't met me yet, is the fact that doing something is going to be difficult to me is never enough justification alone to not do the right thing. Just because it's hard isn't a reason by itself to not do it when you know it's the right thing to do. And I operate that way in my personal life and you know, difficult conversations with humans that I wish I didn't have to have. There's all kinds of things. And I kind of come back to that foundationally here. And I'm not trying to downplay the difficulty. Believe me, I understand how daunting of a task it could be. When it comes to standardization, if that's kind of the voice is, oh, well, it's going to be difficult. I'm like, and what? You know, uh, we, <laughs> that's, you know, it's, it's almost 2024. And the idea that we could still be 
not unified in anything, even as far as a training program, you know, it is mind blowing. I think we've been lucky that it hasn't really gotten out there to the public masses, the lack of stuff we have. We've had the ability to sit here and choose to regulate ourselves if we want to. I do think that there is still, in many law enforcement agencies, still don't see forensics as a separate field of its own. I have had this personal yes. experience like with my own admin. But what I will say is that Almost every, 95-ish percent, I haven't researched it, so, you know, I'm just guesstimating. Around 95-ish percent of the people who are actually the boots on the ground doing the forensic work, doing the crime scenes, doing the fingerprints, doing the whatever other discipline, work for admins in law enforcement who don't understand that and who think that they just throw powder around or that they just put things in brown bags. All of the people doing the work are irritated because they're like, you don't understand. And I think if there were adopted standards that were published and adopted by state legislative bodies and everything, those people, all of y'all that ever have been frustrated with your admin about like, oh my gosh, I work for a lieutenant or whoever who doesn't get what I do and won't let me do such and such or a sergeant who tells me to do this at a crime scene when I know I shouldn't do that. If there is a regulation about it, you can be like, look, there is this state regulation that I have to do it this way. Sorry. There's this published document that says this is what I have to do. And it'll actually make your life so much easier. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. To force them to listen right. and take it seriously, right? right. It, it's like, I'm sorry, I, I have to do this. I Look, there's this thing. That. And I think it'll hopefully help a lot of people that are in those positions because they'll get to say, I'm not crazy. It's not just me. You're blowing me off because you think I'm just a little person who works in a basement. There's like this whole, <laughs> there's this whole document. There's this whole state regulation law thing about it. And yeah, I think that'll help. You know, there are some people who kind of questions like, why ASB, why OSAC? Which is why I like to kind of educate about, hey, look, like let's look at standards in the US as a whole. This is a pretty typical process to have an SDO put out a doc and then it's kind of what happens everywhere. And so that's where this comes from. And there are some people who disagree with some of the content of the docs. That's great. Participate in the public comment period. That's what it's for. I know some people feel like they haven't been heard and I'm happy to clear up some like misconceptions about some of that. There's people out there who feel like, oh, these entities aren't very responsive to the public comments. They just say no to everything. There's a difference between if somebody is saying, I'm really upset. I don't like it this way because I don't like oranges. And you can tell like, well, what we're actually saying is apples and it's not their fault. They've just misunderstood something. When a comment is said no to because in an effort to educate someone of, hey, I get it, but what you think is happening isn't really happening, that's totally different than just saying like, nah, no one gets blown off. But those kinds of conversations about, oh, I'm not sure about the content or, oh, why is it these two? That in a way to me makes sense. But the conversation of why would we have standards at all? Again, I circle back to like, why would we not for so many different reasons and including examiner safety and assurance and to make court less scary for you. <laughs> That would be great. <laughs> to to, help, like, labs, right? like... to help labs not get shut down. Like yes. it's, I, you know, we've seen so many labs get shut down and I'm definitely not in no way calling out as if they did anything wrong or anything like that. But I sometimes wonder, not that they should have been doing anything differently, but I sometimes wonder like if they had a document that they could have pointed to at the time that said, look, RSOPs model this. If that had been the case, then it may have been easier to kind of fend off some of those attacks, if that makes sense. Yeah. 
And yeah. there's so many people that have lost jobs over closed labs. And it's there's yeah, so it's it's a variety of different reasons and ways it can help. As people listen to the differences of opinion about if there should be standards, or also if ASB and OSAC are performing up to par, I encourage people to sometimes ask themselves, is this presenter coming through with all of the data? Are they being completely forthcoming? For example, there was a presentation I saw at II that I know this person is doing it for some divisions where they display some common adjudications from ASB, but they actually don't include the totality. They include the comment and then the end resolution. Every resolution comes with an explanation. And also the resolutions are about the person's suggestion to change, not the comment itself. And they took that out on purpose. And I was like, oh, that's just kind of unfortunate. So there are people out there who are kind of playing dirty pool a little bit and trying to get people against these organizations. So just be mindful. And I always encourage people to ask questions, you know, approach it with positivity. If there's something, a doc that doesn't make sense, reach out to someone, you know, on ASB or OSAC or make that friend that's on one of those so you can ask like, hey, what was this all about? Where did this come from? You know, I haven't experienced problems with this in my area, but is there is this really a thing in the rest of the country? Like where you know, what was the source? And, and just try to remain like open and positive about it rather than just automatically cynical and like, Rah and snarly about it. I do want to ask you one more question before we wrap this convo up, because I feel like we could really talk about this for a long time. <laughs> You've been a part of ASB and OSAC. And so if people were listening to this and were interested in it and would want to get involved in one of those organizations, kind of like you did, or want to get involved in, I know you talked about a little bit about public review, but even being part of those boards or those organizations or anything like that, how could someone go about starting that process of being involved in some of the boards? Thank you, because I didn't even think to bring that up. Anyone in the field can try to be a member of either organization. And the application process, there is information on both websites, either the ASB website or the OSAC website. And you know, sometimes it's not immediate. Uh, sometimes it kind of takes a minute. Either there's not spots open, or as spots do come open in each group, there has to be a certain percentage representation from different fields. For example, in my consulting work, I'm an actual examiner. So there can only be so many of us, and then there have to be some educators and some attorneys. It has to be well-rounded. So sometimes it's just a matter of that, but keep on it. And also I would encourage everybody, it's easier to become a non-voting member of either organization. And that's also a lot faster way to get the foot in the door. And what that means is each of those bodies has voting members who it's exactly how it sounds. They actually vote on motions on the floor. Non-voting members still get to participate in the discussion. They still get to put their ideas out there. They still get to participate in the working groups or the the smaller groups that actually work the dock and then put it for approval to the bigger group. You still get to be a part of all of that process. Literally, the only thing you don't do is actually vote at the end of the discussion. At the OSAC level, it's called an affiliate membership. And at the ASB, it's just observer. It's much faster, much easier to get in at that level and to start right away. And then you get to hear the process. I loved that I was a non-voting member of ASB for a few years first. I had no idea what we were doing or the process of it all. And it just gave me an opportunity to really get my feet underneath me and get comfortable with it all before becoming a voting member. So I highly recommend that. And like I said, it's, it's you're going to get a faster response that way anyway. Well, thank you so much. You've been a wealth of knowledge. Just the fact that you have not just the experience in the forensic field, but experience 
on these boards. I think it will help a lot more people maybe adopt the idea of standardizing forensics. But if they wanted to continue hanging out with you or learn more about Uncover Forensics, can you just let them know where to find you? Yeah, yeah. So the website itself is uncoverforensics.com and you can see a list of all of our classes on there. And they are self-paced. If you ever want an in-person version of one of our classes, just let me know. You can also contact us through the website. There's a contact form. We're also always taking applications for new instructors. If you feel like teaching in that format, I can guide you through what that process is like. And if you want me directly, it's just Brianne at UncoverForensics.com. Again, it's B-R-I-A-N-N-E. I love talking about this stuff. And I feel like it's difficult to do the job day to day and stay in touch with all of this stuff, which is where I love being a resource because I'm so happy to be like, yeah, let me help you out and fill you in on what's going on or, or how it'll work. As you can tell, I get all nerdy and rambly. So it's always nice to have a, you know, a voice about all this stuff and just try to reach more people. It's, it's hard to connect with everyone. There's so many forensic examiners out there in so many different corners of the world and especially in this country. And, you know, I know not every, not everyone has access to get to conferences. So the fact that you guys do this podcast is super helpful, I'm sure. And uh, glad to connect with your audience and just kind of help in any way I can. And thank you for the idea and for having me on here. It's always nice to see your faces. Absolutely. <laughs> we love to have you. We on love here. seeing us too. Yeah. Aww. Thanks for joining us. So I think all of the nuggets that you gave, you really broke it down in a very accessible way. So I think it's thank very, you. very awesome. So if you guys want more okay. of Brienne, you can find her on uncoverforensics.com. Uh, feel free to reach out to her. And thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode. And we will see you at the next one. Bye. Thank you so much for being here and listening to Forensics Unfiltered. If you liked this episode, would you do us a favor and leave a review letting us know specifically what you liked about this topic? It will only take a minute, but it will really help us plan future episodes so we can bring you more topics that you want to listen to. We'll be sure to provide any links from today's episode in our show notes on our website. Head to www.gapscience.com. Until next time, stay safe out there.